Jonathan Swift famously wrote, Satire is a sort of glass, wherein beholders do generally discover everybody's face but their own. In this episode, we investigate the life and works of this famous writer. We tackle the always thorny issues of Irish identity, the Anglo-Irish and the Church of Ireland, as well as the idea of monsters and the monsters that Swift used in his famous work, Gulliver's Travels. This is Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, we investigate tales of monsters, hauntings and other fringe beliefs. We're critical, not cynical here at the Cabin, and in this episode, Donald helps me to understand Swift in the context of his own life and times. The beer for this episode is a lovely O'Hara's Stout, a chocolatey favourite of mine from the great Carlo Brewery. Grab yourself a drink and get settled for this episode, Swift's Monsters, Irish Identity and Gulliver's Travels. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Hi, folks, it's Kean here. You're welcome to the cabin and you're welcome to this episode all about the life and the work of Irishman Jonathan Swift. Few thank yous before we get to the main episode. Firstly, a big thanks to Bristow, a listener from South Carolina. I'm always excited to have listeners from the US. My stats tell me about half of listeners are, uh, and I want to hear more about that. Folks, let us know where you are listening from. Uh, So he says, very interesting discussion and an interesting new pod for me. He's talking about our previous episode, all about the work of H.P. Lovecraft with Scott Poole. That was a really fun one to record, actually. It's really hard to know when you're listening back, you know, whether the sort of back and forth dynamic that you might have been feeling comes comes through i'd love to know if you felt that it did but he was an absolute gentleman a lot of fun to record with really knowledgeable guy and it was it was it was really great to have somebody on the show who knows so much about the old gent of providence also shout out to richard from right here in county cork now richard is a fellow i do know don't see him very often, but I know him a fair bit. A very intelligent guy and a very intellectual guy. And I had a great moment a few years ago, back in back in 2016, I'm pretty sure it was, like just after the American election had been announced or, or something like that. And the timeline is a little fuzzy, but I was working on my first podcast, Strange Ireland, and I went into a cafe in Cork that I really like. And I met Richard. And we were both, you know, it was a strange and confusing time for a lot of us. And we were just talking and trying to set the world to rights. And he mentioned that he was a fan of the show and in particular that he likes listening to it walking into work. And and back as in, you know, getting started in podcasting, that was a really nice moment for me because as a lot of us know who were fans of, of podcasts, you know, the walking to work while listening to your favorite show thing is kind of sacred. It's like a special place. It's like a very personal thing. And the idea that somebody sort of as smart as this fellow was was choosing to spend his time with my show meant a whole lot to me so that's really nice Richard says uh, all right man I've been engaged in this rather boring quantitative work for an academic journal recently which doesn't require a whole lot of concentration and has allowed for the opportunity to listen to podcasts in the background so I've been catching up on old episodes of your show on a friend's recommendation. Just wanted to let you know I'm really enjoying them and keep up the good work. So thank you so much, Richard. He also mentions specifically a shout out for the Q Anon episode with Donald and myself, which again, if, if you haven't heard it, please do check it out. We've had a lot of positive feedback about that one. It's a bit of a darker subject than I usually like to tackle, but people have been really positive about it. It's, it's important stuff and people do need to be talking about it. If QAnon is something that has been on your radar but you haven't done the deep dive yet, um, I would be proud to point you towards that episode as a potential primer. Donald has suggested doing a more general episode about just the nature of populism in general, how to recognize it, why is it on the rise at the moment. So that is something that we might get to possibly after Halloween because I've got most of Halloween sort of planned out already. Anyway, we have... Oh, I've had more thoughts about the True Detective show. So uh, if you've been listening recently on our recent episode 
with uh, Brent Burton, all about sort of mystery animals and uh, Audubon, John James Audubon and the Washington uh, Mystery Sea Eagle. I did a little chat at the beginning of that about my rewatch of The True Detective Show, which is still a great show. I still love it. Um, and I, I, in no way do I think that the writers, Nick Palazzo, for example, intended this, but I did find myself becoming a little less comfortable with it, kind of as part of a larger motif that I'm noticing about mostly satanic panic and stuff like that. I'm no longer seeing satanic panic as a relic of the 80s. I'm kind of seeing it as a more ongoing problem with conspiracy thinking. And somehow, while talking about this, I forgot to mention that True Detective was based on a real case. So the the cult that's in the show, the Louisiana-based, sort of church-based satanic cult slash occult cult, if that's not too many oaths, is based on a real thing, which was basically a, a town called Panchatula in Louisiana and a church called the Hosanna Church, where there was some sort of abuse uh, scandal going on. And I know this because I met somebody who'd been there, um, a friend of mine who I worked with in a lab years ago while working abroad came to visit England last year visit London while I was still living in Essex and I met up with her and she'd been living in Louisiana for about 10 years and she brought some friends with her and one of them somehow this this came up over conversation while we were having dinner and this fellow said oh I know that story I lived near Ponchatoula and I knew that church and I knew people who were tangentially involved now, he didn't know a tremendous amount about it besides that. He just confirmed it was a thing that happened and people knew about it, or at least people were talking about it. There were a lot of rumors. Now, there's a lot of aspects of that story that are red flags for me. There's a lot of talk about really over-the-top sort of you know, satanic slash occult abuse, which I'm always suspicious about just because... This is a, a reoccur... Those of us who study the history of weird beliefs, these things crop up again and again and again, and they always turn out to be hysteria. Now, it does seem there were real uh, abuse things happening in that particular case, but we're talking a situation that started out where there were claims of, you know, large numbers of dead and abused babies and children, secret uh, underground layers you know, uh, sacrificing of animals, gallons of blood everywhere, large numbers of people involved. And over the course of the court case, it got kind of shrunk down to uh, like just two people who actually were jailed for comparatively minor um, numbers of abuse, horrible abuse, but much smaller scale than was originally sort of trumped up. It's difficult to know what really went on because a lot of the key participants changed their story many times over the course of the investigation, there absolutely was some sort of abuse going on. It's just, whenever I hear these over-the-top sort of occult claims, it just reminds me of every other time that this sort of thing has come up and turned out to be not the case. I might do an episode on it in the future. I have more research to do before I weigh in definitively uh, what I think was really going on with that. And it's not to say that nobody ever has ever carried out an actual ritual abuse sort of a ring. But it is, it is incredibly rare by comparison with the sort of amount of space it conjures up inside in our heads. So more to come with that one. Anyway, as, as usual, guys, if you like the show, please subscribe. Numbers are going up, so I know some of you are doing that. So huge thanks to you who are. Please do get in touch. We love to know who's listening. We love to know where you're listening from. Just, you know, get, send us something our way saying, hi, we're listening from such and such a place. That's cool. Share episodes with anyone who you think might like them. And oh yeah, you can get in touch with us on Twitter where we are at Strange Ireland or over on Instagram where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast and we finally have merchandise. Hooray! So what does that mean? It means that you can get a sweet mug with our lovely RNG October logo on the front. On the back it says critical, not cynical to remind you sort of your mindset to have while investigating stories of the strange. And we have sweet t-shirts as well. And if you send us in a picture of you, you know, doing some wearing one or drinking from the other, we'll be very happy to share that. Now, coming up to the end of Halloween and October, what do we have? We have more episodes about weird fiction. We've had Lovecraft already. We have Arthur Mackin coming up hopefully this week. We will also have this ghost story of Borley Rectory, probably for Halloween, all things going right. And at the same time, we'll be dropping 
a bonus episode to introduce you to our Patreon plan so you can hear an example of what you'll be getting if you're interested in signing up for that. So all of that's still to come. Let's introduce the main thing. We've got a slightly older recording. It's something that myself and my brother Donald recorded a few months ago. He was getting ready for his thesis defense. Now, shortly after this, he did indeed defend successfully defend his thesis. He is now one of the most qualified people we've had on the show, I'm proud to say. He is now a bona fide expert in none other than Jonathan Swift. And that is what we are here to talk about. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Jonathan Swift is born in Dublin in 1667 and he dies there in 1745. He's an Anglo-Irish writer of fiction, of political tracts, of poetry and prose. And he's probably one of Ireland's most celebrated and well-known writers. Uh, There's a lot of people that would only know Swift really um, as a result of Gulliver's Travels in a very heavily redacted version that's been kind of rendered child-friendly but is it's actually a very deep and even vexing book Swift said himself in a letter to his friend uh, the great English poet um, Alexander Pope that his purpose with Gulliver's Travels was to vex readers. Um, He also wrote a, a famous satire that's frequently deemed the greatest satire in all of the English language which is called A Modest Proposal for short. Uh, in some, it pr- um, proposes solving the um, both the poverty and hunger crisis of the Catholic uh, native population of Ireland by feeding them their own children. Uh, but he writes multiple other things, and he, like I said, he's a political pamphleteer, um, initially for the Whig government and then for the Tory government uh, in the early 1700s. So we're going to talk about Gulliver's Travels and some of the ways in which it can perhaps not just give... Um, portraits and pictures of weird, interesting, fantastic, and even monstrous things in line with the White Atlantic Weird brand, but also offer some insight into perhaps some of the reasons why people believe weird things. Yeah, I think there are a lot of connections with other things I, I like to cover, especially when it comes to travel, travel narratives, the idea of strange beings and strange things being in other places, uh, Orientalism, and of course the Age of Empire. This would be sort of the very earliest time of of the British Empire, you know, by connection with the things that I do like. In the spine-chilling book of monsters, which I've been quoting from a lot this month because I got it in the post and I'm reliving kind of old stories that fascinated me as a kid, there was a chapter about monsters in fiction and... Swift and Gulliver's Travels was heavily featured. There were amazing illustrations of the the yahoos and the... How do you pronounce the name of the, the intelligent horse people? It's Winnems. So it's supposed to represent like a whinny, which is the, the sound. Oh. Like alongside... An, there's two sounds, I suppose, that horses make. Uh, a whinny and a neigh. Um, so the Winnems is supposed to represent the whinny. We've also got one of my <clears throat> sort of pet, pet topics here, here, which of course is the Anglo-Irish. I think the reason this shows up so often on the show is because I'm just fascinated with stories of sort of adventure and and, and unlikely happenings from the the age of high empire, the long 19th century largely. And a lot of that stuff was written by um, a lot of British writers and Anglo-Irish writers who kind of would have a foot in in British culture as well. Now, I made an attempt to, uh, a mangled attempt to describe what Anglo-Irish means in the Howard Bury episode about the Yeti footprints, but um, Swift is kind of a bit different. How, how would, do you think he should be described accurately as, as, as an Irishman, as nebulous a concept as that might be? So he considered himself an Englishman, very resoundingly so, and he, he rejected being labelled as Irish. His uh, parents were English, although he himself, as I mentioned, was born in Dublin. Um, and he was mostly raised there. He did spend some time as a baby in England, um, but uh, was mostly reared in Ireland. He went to uh, secondary school in Kilkenny, and he went to Trinity College Dublin. He was back and forth between England and Ireland for a good portion of his kind of um, young adulthood, or young manhood, let's say. Um, But after 1710, and especially after 1714, he kind of considered himself imprisoned in Ireland, stuck there um, as the Dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. He was uh, an ordained uh, 
Church of Ireland man, which is an important kind of angle on this. And so one of the things that makes him so kind of intractably Irish despite himself is he was um, a member of the established church. So that means the church that's kind of politically incorporated into not just the, the monarchy, but also just the general political structures in England and Ireland at the time. Um, meaning that they had a thing called the Test Act, which meant that in order to take any political office, this was put in place in 1701, in both Ireland and England, you had to take uh, communion by the Church of England slash Ireland standard, which are basically the same thing. They're just pol different political structures, but they had that. Just quickly for anybody who's not uh, au fait with the political situation, that the Church of Ireland is, is the Protestant, the main Protestant church in Ireland at this time. Yeah, so it's it's the Irish branch of the Anglican Church. Um, and you would have also had like a, a very wide range of other Protestant sects. They're typically kind of clustered under the titles of either free thinkers or uh, dissenters. Dissenters is typically the uh, kind of phrase that Swift would use. They were basic. They were typically more radical um, and and zealous in Swift's mind. Whereas in his, his, his thinking, the Anglican Church kind of found what they called the via media, the middle way. So plucking the right stuff from Catholicism and the right stuff from Protestantism without letting it ever get out of control. And also having a, an episcopacy, which is like a kind of a church government or government by bishops. So it has the hierarchical structure. Whereas the free thinking or dissenting Protestants were typically quite democratic, decentralized and kind of very, very, very local. Now, disputes in... Anglicanism about how kind of close to Catholicism or how close to more decentralized dissenting versions of Protestantism the Church of England and Ireland should go kind of were, were rife and these kind of get broken down into high church and low church so low church church being more decentralized high church being more centralized and hierarchical Swift was an advocate of the the more hierarchical form and so one of the things that, that, that shapes his vantage points and kind of starts his pathway, let's say, towards um, crafting a uniquely Anglo-Irish viewpoint is that although he sides with the church established to the crown uh, on virtually everything, he thinks that the Church of Ireland gets a bad shake from both the politics of politicians of England and also from the established church in England. So he thinks that from a... Um, let's say, ecclesiastical position, the Church of England has the right ideas. But politically, they don't give a fair shake to the established church in Ireland. And so therefore he starts, even at a reasonably young age, while he's still kind of proclaiming to all his friends and all in all his tracks that Ireland's an awful place. He's surrounded by debased Catholic savages and, you know, zealous Presbyterians who, you know, are obsessed with the idea that, you know, they're being communicated with by the Holy Spirit through their the fillings in their teeth and all this kind of stuff. But he thinks all the same that uh, there's there's something to the the way in which the Irish Church is not getting a fair shake that he has to speak up for and he has to advocate for. And in fact, like one of his significant um, kind of political jobs in the early part of his life is to go over to England and advocate for the interests of the Church of Ireland. And he kind of catches the eye of some of the higher ranking politicians there and they notice like wow this guy can write and so he essentially becomes a kind of a writer for hire for uh political power like i said initially for the Whig party then later on for the tory party and he's kind of he becomes very known at very high levels for someone who can absolutely massacre an opponent in writing so he becomes like a, a very a legendary um writer of political tracts and pamphlets and I, I suppose you, it, it would be fair to say that after independence and, and the idea of Irishness as a concept, we, we have to come up with new new versions of that. And we, we look into our past and we choose, uh, you know, things that we like and, and we we're, we're happy to kind of reclaim elements to anything that makes us, you know, feel like this this nation of of, of writers and, and artists and all, all of these kind of people. We look back into into our history and choose the ones and uh, sort of sand off the rough edges, whether or not they themselves would have seen it that way. Well, one of the things that he does um, in his later career is he writes a series of pamphlets. This is after he's kind of been sent home from England. One, he, what he really wanted was to get a bishopric in England somewhere so he could become a high-ranking member of the clergy and then could kind of, you know, wield political influence 
through through that kind of um, uh, realm, I suppose. But some of the stuff that he wrote, especially the satire, A Tale of a Tub, was deemed kind of like too caustic for its own good. It's essentially a satire on the three dominant religions, Catholicism, dissenting Protestantism, and Anglicanism, and it's designed to show that Anglicanism is better than the other two. But it's kind of so biting uh, in its kind of satirical presentation of religion in general that lots of people in positions of power thought that nobody who writes like this could be a true believer, right? So even though the purpose of the satire is to say, look at these oafs who aren't Anglican, shouldn't they be Anglican? It's, it's kind of so totalizing in its depiction of religion that as even Queen Anne, who was uh, obviously the monarch at the time, thought like this swift guy is dangerous, his ideas can't be um, trusted, whatever. So he sent, at that point, his, his opportunities in England are, are done. So he's sent home to Ireland and he's festering and he's angry and he's writing to his friends over in England. He's friends with some of the, the very, very big and important writers at the time. He's writing to them things like, I count no man as un truly unfortunate unless they've lived in Ireland. So, like, he really hates the place and he considers himself a prisoner there. But he kind of can't help but to advocate for the political interests of the kind of ascent, like the, the nascent or uh, growing uh, Protestant elite. Especially the idea that these are Englishmen who have a kind of God-given right due to their better culture, better civilization, and better religion to rule this land, and that the English are lying to them, they're mendacious, they're rapacious, they don't care about the Protestant, like the real Protestants' position of political control in uh, in Ireland. And so he writes a series of, of kind of pieces called the Drapier's Letters. It's, it's in response to a proposal by a government minister in England to bring in a kind of a debased uh, coinage in Ireland that would essentially rip off the Irish economy and favour British uh, um, imports and exports. And so he writes a series of pieces called the Drapier's Letters about this. And in it, he imagines an Irish community, gives voice to a kind of a, um, a sense of Irishness, that there are Irish interests that are not just English interests in Ireland, that they're distinctly Irish. Now, he's talking about a Protestant Irish elite. He's not talking about the Catholic people, whether they're the remnants of the old Gaelic aristocracy or whether they're just, you know, you know regular lads having going about their day. But these are the kind of the pieces that establish within for him a reputation as what they call uh, the Hibernian patriot. And he writes them anonymously because it's kind of seditious to criticize the government in this way. But everybody knows it's swift. And the Lord Lieutenant in Ireland puts out a bounty to say, Anyone who reveals the writer of the Drapier's letters uh, will get, you know, X amount of money or whatever. And nobody turns him in, which makes him tremendously proud. And for the last few years of his life, on his birthday, they would have bonfires and celebrations all throughout Dublin to celebrate the Hibernian Patriot or whatever. So what you end up with when Ireland is trying to craft an identity separate to Britain is you take a character like this who's actually really... Um, emblematic of the messy, intractable, and completely uh, enmeshed relationship between the two places. And you just pluck out the bits that shows him to be Irish, you polish it so that only the parts that represent a universal Irishness shine, rather than the much more narrow conception of Irishness that he actually had in mind. And so now he gets paraded as, you know, the Hibernian patriot, never mind what he thought Hibernian meant. You know, like he was, he was about as... Um, negative towards the quote-unquote native Irish population, as you could imagine, saying things like "What the key way to make um, the Irish people civilized is to like stop them from speaking the Irish language. Like he thought that that was a, an, a, a powerful barrier to civilizing the natives, as it were. So like he has too, way, way, way too much uh, baggage and skeletons in the closet for anyone who knows anything about him to say like we can hold this guy up as a symbol of Irish nationalism in any way that represents you know let's say the Michael Collins kind of spirit but that didn't pre prevent the governments from putting him on the 10 uh, pound note no <laughs> and and we grow up with him as kind of a a link on the chain of like here's the, here are the great Irish figures throughout history and he is a great figure um, and he is distinctly Irish but like most things 
You know, it's like you have to take George Washington, the, you know, the, the person for whom the presidency was modeled after, and also George Washington, the land speculator, the person who participated in indigenous genocide, the slave owner. Like, it's all the same thing, and we have to reconcile the complexity of history rather than just, you know, black out the bits that are uncomfortable and go with the bits that make us feel good. Well, let's get to Gulliver's Travels. It is many things, but uh, prime amongst them, it is it is a sort of a, a spoof on contemporary travel writing. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, it's so it's written in a documentarian style with a kind of a detached uh, narrative voice, sort of feigning the anthropological viewpoint that was just starting to gain traction um, due to again, a kind of an emergent enlightenment ideal of, I suppose, social science that, you know, we can compare civilizations and learn things about humanity in a universal sense. And this was a kind of a time where, again, travel writing was very popular to a mass audience just because people didn't travel all that often or very far. Um, So Swift is kind of making fun of that as a genre, but also making fun of the, the recommendations from scientists and kind of what would later become anthropologists in saying like when you travel or when you see fantastic or amazing things uh, adopt this detached tone because we don't want to see it through the prism of your eyes that your you know your subjectivity will distort what happens so it's it's kind of playing off of that spoofing the idea that an individual uh, you know who's fallible by nature you know he's going to be kind of orthodox Christian in that sense, um, or come at this from an orthodox Christian uh, vantage point of the fallen soul, the stain of original sin, these kinds of things. So like, why would you ever trust someone who writes a book about their travels um, to tell you the truth? Um, So it's it's broken down into four sections, typically call this four books in the, those of us who study this kind of thing. Um, Book one is really the the most famous one. This is the version that gets kind of passed along to kids. So Gulliver is a sailor. He's actually a surgeon. Um, but he joins a, a sailing ship. And it's kind of one of the fun things about it is that just it part of the, the satire and the travel is that it's just constantly um, getting into absurd mischief. So the book start like there's only a very sketchy little story of him before his youth and, and education that before he uh, goes off sailing. But very quickly, anyway, his uh, his his first voyage is shipwrecked, and he lands in a place called Lilliput. So he uh, is shipwrecked among tiny Lilliputians, and this is a society of people who are twelve times smaller than human beings. So the famous image that everybody remembers is that he's kind of wakes up tied down on the beach, and the uh, the Lilliputians start to negotiate with him to see how they can accommodate this giant in their land and all this. And in, what happens in a lot of the text is he, he has like a, a completely absurd capacity for language. So he learns these languages and then has come long conversations about the politics, culture and history of all these places with various peoples, typically uh, leaders. In the case of Lilliput, he learns everything from the emperor of the land. And he finds a society that's kind of fallen into corruption. Uh, they tell the sto- he tells the story of their admirable original political institutions, but due to the kind of inherent tendency of humanity towards degeneration, they collapse uh, into um, a kind of a, 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 a terrible system riven by um, a vainglorious, imperialistic, power-hungry emperor who rules over a factitious kind of land where you have... Um, people arguing and broken into political camps over completely absurd things like uh, high heels or low heels on their shoes and whether or not you should eat an egg by breaking the top end or the big end or the low end first. This is designed, this is all very topical satire of the political um, world of of England in the early 1700s. So it's, it's a satire on the Whigs and the Tories, it's a satire on Britain's relationship and wars with France, and it's a satire on um, uh, high church and low church Anglicans. So it's a. Sat- I have to. I have to ask quickly. How did it come to be that this bit of the story alone 
gets in later centuries gets passed on as a kid's story i think it's the it's the most overtly fantastic uh it's just and the imagery is just so memorable so captivating that you know the giant tied down i mean later on it gets wackier like there's a scene where he has to grapple with what to do with um his defecation where it's essentially like you know and like a mountain he's creating a mountain for he's, them. yeah a toxic mountain you know so there's a big discussion of that and later there's a fire in the palace and he kind of pees to put it out <laughs> and he gets in deep trouble for this it's i think it's it's a kind of a mea culpa of swift um acknowledging his uh the the, the naivete of his own um involvement in kind of court politics and party politics and in his in his youth were to see like that even when you help people out they find a way to demonize you and in the end he is enlisted as kind of like a wmd against the neighboring uh society that the lilliputians are at war with um but essentially he's he's thought to be too much of a threat even to lilliput so there's a kind of a scheme out to they they tell some lies about him and before long he's he's more or less banished and has to go home so that's book one. That's book one, yeah. And it's, like I said, the stuff about the poo and the peeing, that's, that's often scrubbed from the kids' version. And even, even I, like his I'm kind of... I'm surprised Jack Black didn't attempt to bring that stuff back. It sounds like his, <laughs> his type of thing. Yeah, and there's like bits where he just like swats away the entire fleet of the neighboring army and stuff, which would be, I think, tro- yeah. troubling. I to- remember a book with, with that illustration as a kid. Yeah, that'd be troubling to kids as well, I think. So that's often, again, has to be kind of cleaned up a little bit. Um, but yeah, so book one, I, it's the most um, topical satire in the whole thing. And it's kind of like, it's it's the mirror to uh, contemporary or the then contemporary English party and court politics. And Swift wrote in an earlier writing, the Battle of the Books, where he says, uh, satire is a mirror that uh, readers recognize every face except their own. So this is the kind of thing where <laughs> you, you, he can write this feeling comfortable that everybody will think it's, you know, someone else that he's, he's lampooning. But he, he casts his net wide, like there's, there's jabs in here at everyone. Um, and so it, it's, it, when you read this very carefully, there's a lot of decoding that can be done. Okay, let's get to book two. So he go, it's very important to note that he goes home at the end of every voyage. Often uh, has a new kid from the last time he was home. and <laughs> But he's kind of got itchy, itchy feet, as they say. He says he has a, an insatiable appetite to see other countries. And he, even he, he says it at a later point in the book, he has a violent desire to travel. So he sets sail again. And he essentially goes to the inverse of Lilliput, where he goes to a place called Brobdignag. And it's a land of giants. So now he is 12 times smaller than the people around him. And essentially, kind of like if... Um, it's, it's like as though the size difference between Gulliver as, a, let's say, a representative of Europeans or, or even just Englishmen or whatever, um, and the Brobdignagians is 12-fold. Well, also the gap in virtue between them is 12-fold as well. So... He's now a Lilliputian among giants. He initially, um, he ends up in the kind of court palace again, but initially he's um, taken by a family. He's kind of treated as a pet by a a young girl. Then the father finds him and starts to actually show him as a freak of nature to locals who are just like, oh, look at this tiny man. Which is something that happened in Europe as late as the 19th century. Yeah, there's a very good book by a guy called Dennis Todd called Imagining Monsters. And it's all about the role of <clears throat> monstrosity in the 18th century um, imagination. And he says that a lot of this kind of freak show stuff is all about uh, the detachment that people kind of can can facilitate. Like, so they detach by, by seeing freaks. So they detach from themselves. They stop thinking about their own deformity. He kind of talks about how there's, there's this persistent fear throughout the 18th century and popular writing of like how bad human beings can be and how depraved we can get and so when we see freaks and monsters it allows us to check out of that so that's one of the one of the things that Gulliver is doing here but it's also again it's an indictment on human beings for doing this to 
not just to other human beings, but also to just other things in general. Because a lot of this book is about the, I suppose, the delusional hubris and pride of human beings that to place ourselves so much higher than other beings on this earth. That we think that we're so great. And that if you actually look at the evidence, it's... it's, it's uh, it sounds like a distinctly humanist take for a guy so wrapped up in the, the C of I. <clears throat> well... Is that just my own my own 21st century concept of what Protestantism is, what Christianity is? I, I would say that it's less humanist than you think. So what he's saying, essentially, like humanism is more like let's focus on human potential and let's allow ourselves to bloom through the through the blossoming of reason, let's say. He's kind of saying, if you look at the evidence, the prosecution has a much, much stronger case than... Uh, against, let's say, indicting humanity for depravity than than the defense. Um, and so we shouldn't get too high on our own supply in thinking that our capacity for reason makes us, you know, capable of wonderful things. And he's not going to go down the full Calvinist route. You know, that's too zealous for him. But he's essentially saying that when we look at beasts and laugh, or when we look at beasts and monsters and think like, oh, thank God I'm not like that. He's kind of saying, oh, yeah, you don't think so? what are you doing now <laughs> okay so what happens with the with the giants so he ends up meeting the uh the king of brobdingnag and he kind of very pridefully tells of english politics and culture and uh, not realizing that all the things he's describing are not in fact virtues and you know again evidence for of the excellence of england but in fact are you know uh, all all condemn england uh, morally and so the same thing happens in in first men of the moon by hg wells at the end anyway yeah and so the the king of brobdingnag who's kind of like one of the more straightforward characters in that he is more or less a mouthpiece for swift's own views there's a lot of like double-handedness um with the satire here because you know people are presented in one way but you're meant to take them another way or there's not a lot of consistent characterization because this is kind of like, this is written in 1726. So the form of the novel as something where you have an interior, inter, like a psychologically interiorized and um, like comprehensively sculpted individual goes through an arc, right? Like the set up, you know, the set up the character, set up the stakes, overcome the stakes, emerge on the other side, kind of changed, right? That's the basic narrative format of a novel that hasn't really crystallized yet so like a lot of the characters are just especially Gulliver they're just kind of like whatever the the moment of satire needs them to be but the king of Brobdingnag is kind of like swift in in full moral voice condemning you know the the the, the corruption and degeneracy of an aristocracy that's abdicated its role to steward the country uh, of you know rapacious lawyers and and zealous bigots and all this kind of stuff and so one of the great lines is when Gulliver um is finishes off with his story he's also he's doing things like he's offering the king gunpowder and stuff <laughs> the king is like why the hell would I want that you you know you monster and so the ki- <laughs> the king says that he cannot but conclude that uh, Englishmen or humans are the most pernicious race of little odious vermin that nature ever suffered to crawl upon the surface of the earth. And so Gulliver's kind of like, ah, he doesn't know what he doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> and one of, one of the great things that, that was a big um, inspiration for my own research on this book, actually, is that the king says, it sounds like England is a hellhole. And you've been out of it for a long time. Why haven't you gotten any better? You know, like, why, why, <laughs> why hasn't your traveling, or haven't your travels improved? Why haven't, why haven't you been enlightened? Why, why have you not allowed this to change you? Exactly. Or like, why are you getting worse as you travel more? So this was kind of the inspiration for my, my research into uh, Gulliver's travels. And one of the great things is, again, in a moment of kind of classic hubris, Gulliver says at the end, you know, you can't blame him for for saying this stuff because he's never traveled. So 
you know, he's he's kind of he's doomed through an in, to, to an insular perspective because of his inherently parochial life. Um, and so Swift is saying again, kind of, I, I, I think at least, um, better to stay where you are and shore up a firm kind of basis of, of moral knowledge than it is to know a little bit and go travel and make yourself worse. <laughs> <clears throat> right. What is the, is the third section the horse people or the floating island? It's the floating island. So the, the third section, he goes to a place called um, Laputa. Again, he goes home. Uh, kind of tries to shack back up with the wife. No interest, has to go travel again. The feet are too itchy. So, but again, he is, you know, the victim of piracy this time. And so it's like every time he gets back onto a ship, something something else stupid and ridiculous happens. Um, and it's kind of like the, the formulaic presentation of he goes, has wacky adventures, comes home, can't take it, goes off, something calamitous happens on the voyage, and then is more it, wacky adventures. Is it adventures. a joke almost? Well, I think it's designed to show that human beings don't learn from their mistakes and that even when you live big, massive mistakes, you know, we don't actually uh, learn it's, our it's lesson. It's like the, in, in the Sinbad stories from the, uh, from the Thousand and One Nights, but I don't think there would have been any European translations that early. I don't think no. in the 1720s. No, no. He, he wouldn't have had access to that. He was more uh, interested in... I mean, he had a lot of travelers' travelers' tales from the likes of Hacklet and Dampier, um, a lot of the stuff from like the early colonization of the Americas uh, by the by the English over in Jamestown and stuff like that, and all, but also just like outright fictitious tales of the Kraken and you know all the rest of it. <laughs> One of the things he says is like you know he admits retrospectively that he he should have stayed home. You know, like, why is he keep going out here? And he says, if I could have learned the lesson of knowing when I was living well. So, again, this is, a, I think, an important point for Swift to say, like, it's, it's, you're not automatically going to be edified or, you know, be benefited by emerging out into the world. So, he, this time, he's a victim of piracy, and he's cast away, and he ends up washed up on the shore of a, of a place with a, where there's a flying island called Laputa. And this is a kind of, this is a satire on the, what they call the new science. So in particular, it's really going after Francis Bacon and the Royal Society of London. Um, and kind of Isaac Newton as well, to some degree. Um, and really, it's a, it's a kind of a, it's a presentation of that scientific or like scientism. A viewpoint of where everything is abstracted out of the practical kind of lived concerns of real people doing real things and so the people in Laputa they only care about speculative thinking and so they're obsessed with mathematics and music and all these things that can be kind of rendered into complex but abstract frameworks that are again like devolved away from human life um, and so the, the people there are like completely aloof from each other to the point the where... Floating Island a, a metaphor for them being a, believing they're above people and, and they're, they're above common, common thought? Yeah, and, but they're also, they're literally just above ground level where real people live. Yeah, um, so it's, it's both, yeah, it, it's useless effectively, but to them they think it's uh, higher raised. What's, so they're, they're all obsessed with speculative thought um, and the aristocracy there are completely degraded to the point where their eyes are rolled back into their head. They can't pay attention to each other or anyone. And they have these uh, things called the flappers who follow them around and bang them on the side of the head with a bag of dried up peas in order to get their attention. And so Gulliver says that he can only really communicate with the vulgar people in society. So the people of like a lower class because they're not lost away in abst abstract kind of thought. Right. So is this and uh, so what is he? Um, so this is like a a satire on the nascent scientific establishment of England. Yeah, the, as he sees it. Yeah, the pure science um, kind of mentality, and one of the things that he think that he says is that um, science kind of develops this narrative of its own. Um, of its own power by denying any criticism. That essentially science equals progress and therefore all things conducted and done in the name of science 
is always better and nobody gets to criticize. And so one of the things that he shows is that in Laputa and the place that the island hovers over, which is called Balnabarbi, there's essentially economic ruin. Uh, people are starving, the crops are dying, all this kind of stuff. And it's because they're committed to all these quote-unquote cutting-edge progressive scientific techniques that just don't work. Um, but they're refusing to accept that. And so he goes from Bal uh, Laputa down to Balnabarbi to this place called the Academy of Laca Legado, which is this place where all these projectors um, are working on all their scientific projects. And so there's people like who are trying to uh, re-engineer poo back into food. They're trying to, there's a guy who looks basically like disheveled and decrepit because he spent the last eight years trying to extract uh, sunbeams out of cucumbers. And there's kind of, there's this, again, there's this idea of like, we will never ever give up on this because we can't possibly be wrong. And there's no such thing as invalid scientific work. So there's, there's, a, there's a tradition of interpreting Swift as being very, um, <clears throat> not just reactionary, but like just off base on this. So like there's a lot of ideas in Gulliver's Travels that people say like, oh wow, look how prescient he was. And there's a tradition of reading this to say like, yeah, oh, but he just didn't get science and he missed it. But there's, I think there's another way to read it, which is that like, rather than it being a criti critic, uh, criticism of science, I think you can take it as a good criticism of scientism. And that again, the power of the lab coat, you know, as a, a totalizing thing. Uh, the other thing is that he's trying to sort of get across is that we shouldn't give people who have technological or scientific prowess, political power on that basis, that politics and science and technology are different things, and that being good at politics is very different to being good at science or technology, and that when you conflate the two, you're likely to end up in some form of kind of like technocratic tyranny, uh, kind of like modern China, to be honest. But... One of the ways in which he shows this is that the flying island Laputa can uh, essentially tyrannize Balnabarbi by dropping itself down onto people below, so just crushing them. And lots of people speculate that this is a satirical presentation of the relationship between England and Ireland, that, you know, England has economic and technological power over Ireland and can just crush it at a, at a drop of the hat and that this is kind of, I suppose, representative of um, the ways in which, you know, power corrupts. There's the famous line from Lord Acton, uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And the quickest way to get absolute power is through technological mastery. And so the kind of the people who reject kind of the tried and trusted communitarian traditional ways of life to say, now you must go with science, you must follow science, uh, are oftentimes, in Swift's view, using this to justify their own domination over the political realm through non-political argument, if you want to think about it like that. So it's kind what of... Happens, yeah. Yeah, just what happens... How does he get off the island? What? How does that one wrap up? Um, he, he basically... He doesn't like these people at all. He can't get along with them because uh, he can't talk to most of them, and he feels really bad for the uh, projectors, because they're all just, like, failing miserably. He even goes into, like, the last room in the Academy of uh, Legado, where all the projectors are, is where you, he meets the political projectors, and he just thinks, like, these are the most pathetic oafs ever. And they're trying to solve the problem of, um, of faction, or what we would today call polarization, by getting Whigs and Tories and cutting open their heads and chopping their, their brains up, to try to uh, give people half a Tory brain and half a Whig brain so that they can argue with themselves and resolve the contradiction internally rather than creating, you know, outward conflict in the society, this kind of stuff. So anyway, he decides he doesn't want to stay in Laputa any longer and he ends up moving on. <clears throat> and one of the really, again, abiding images, actually, if you read the full text rather than the kiddies version, is that uh, he ends up seeing, in, in the next place he goes to, he sees um, a bunch of people called the uh, Struddlebrugs. And the Struddlebrugs are people who are born with a little mark on their head, and it means essentially that they're going to be immortal. And Swift thinks, oh, wow, not Swift, sorry, Gulliver. Wow, wouldn't it be incredible to have eternal life? And then he meets some Struddlebrugs, and the thing is, 
they do live forever, but they just keep getting old. And they get older <laughs> and older and older and older. So his desire for a long life or an endless life abates because what he sees is the endless decrepitude of these people. This was something that Swift himself was very um, aware of, concerned about. Like he wrote Gulliver's Travels when he was 59, I think. And so he was already kind of in pretty dodgy shape. He had a lot of issues with vertigo and this thing called Meniere's disease, which is like an, an inner ear imbalance kind of thing. So he was prone to dizziness and forgetfulness. And like I said, he, or I think I said, he dies non-compass mentis and for about nine years or something, he's essentially, you know, not of sound mind and body. So he was, he had issues with short-term memory loss and all this kind of stuff. So I think he was very concerned about how the human body ages in ways that makes us not even recognize and resemble ourselves. And he found that kind of horrifying. There's actually like, there's a decent kind of version of like proto Cronenbergian body horror to this. Like just I was, I was gonna say <laughs> I didn't know if that was too lowbrow a reference to make, but that's what came into my head. <laughs> and yeah, and it's elsewhere in the book too. There's a there's a lot of stuff about defecation in it, in a kind of a way of like, especially like the the irreducible physicality of the human experience, like having to go for a poo doesn't stop just because you happen to be a giant, you know, in a giant in a <laughs> land of small people. There's in 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 Brobdingnag when he's small, surrounded by giants. There's a really vivid scene where he's describing seeing the human body up close and how disgusting it is when you zoom in. Um, and there's a, there's a misogynistic element to this, too, because he happens to see a woman breast, breastfeeding a child. And he's really just noting how the kind of the nodes on the nipple and the veins in the breast are just truly grotesque. And so he's kind of thinking like there's a degree to which when you zoom out, a breast is... I think a beauty, when you zoom in, it becomes something else. And this is kind of, I suppose, indicative of the early days of the microscope and, you know, playing with vantage points and perspective um, and how, you know, again, something that could be considered an emblem of beauty can become an emblem of distaste and disgust when viewed from a different perspective. Um, but the Strudelbrugs represent definitely something in the Cronenbergian mold of, is this my body? This is, you know, very much, a, this isn't what I signed up for kind of thing. Let's get to book four. So book four is the, the hardest one to understand, I would say. It's the one where if you think about Gulliver's Travels and you want to say something about it, this is the one where you kind of have to put your, put your chips into the center of the, of the table and, and, and put your money where your mouth is. The other ones are, are less contested for the most part, whereas book four is, it's a tough one. So, again, goes home, can't take it, goes back out. This time, he's a victim of mutiny. <laughs> um, and so he's abandoned on an island this time because essentially what happens is he goes and when he's on the boat, he, uh, a bunch of his, his crewmates all get sick and die and then they have, to, they have to get a replacement crew of buccaneers and the pirates, this the buccaneers basically j just turn on him. So they dump him on an island and it's inhabited by these rational and civilized horses who are called the Winhams, which is supposed to be like a onomatopoeic presentation of the, of the whinny, the sound that horses supposedly make. And there's also these unruly, brutal humanoids, the yahoos. So we're not initially presented with them as direct analogues for the human being but that becomes clear in time that they are in fact um, at, at best humanoid and at worst fully human right they're just more savage and wild and untamed and debased versions of of our good selves um, and so def so essentially uh, you can kind of fall down there's two general schools that understand this in oppositional ways one that says that the civilized rational horses are the the ideal of the satire and that that's what we should be seeing as as better versus you know I, I, the contemptible lowly and disgusting brutish yahoos and then there's another version that sees um the horses actually as deficient and inhuman in certain ways and they're they represent something that we shouldn't aspire to and that actually the yahoo should be you know thought of sympathetically um 
So the horses, the Winhams, Win uh, like I said, they live a perfectly rational existence in concert with nature. And they, they have no lying. They have no disputation. The only debate that they have essentially is whether or not they, the yahoos who are to them beastly and loathsome, whether or not they should be exterminated from the face of the earth. Uh, I think that Swift likes the Winhams as an ideal of rationality, but he doesn't think that that's an ideal that human beings um, can meet or can match up to, but that the yahoos are kind of depraved in a way that is total. Let's think about it like that. Um, so this is a... The Winhams have a caste society and they practice eugenics. They have a flourishing oral culture, but there are no books. Swift was kind of um, uh, platonic in that he he recognized the, the ways in which books can vex through the myriad of possible interpretations and the corruption inherent in um, the kind of anarchy of interpretation. Which is funny because he wrote books that were really hard to understand. Um, but he's, a, he's massively hypocritical in terms of what I think what he thought and how he lived and what he did. But that doesn't really matter. Um, this is, there's no books, like I said, but there is education of both sexes. Uh, there's no money and virtually no technology, like they don't even have the wheel. Um, but they are kind of, they're a singular culture, like I said, in that there's no difference of opinion, no dissent. Everybody agrees. The only thing that they can't agree on is whether or not they should exterminate the Yahoo or not, because they're generally pacifistic, but everybody agrees that the Yahoos are horrendous. Uh, they're also kind of they're, they're communal, or even communistic, uh, agrarian. They're self-sufficient. Um, and, and so in these kinds of ways, they represent um, a real utopia. A utopia in the sense of an ideal society, but also a soci society that doesn't exist. Right? Utopia as a Greek word means like the place that doesn't exist. So we often use it to mean like uh, pie in the sky, best case, blue, case, blue sky scenario. Um, but really what, what it meant when Thomas More wrote about it in kind of every um, uh, utopian narrative since is what they're really getting at is here's a standard that we're never going to see. That's why this place doesn't exist. Uh, so they hate the yahoos viciously and they're austere and even stoic. And they, it's kind of a, they represent a society kind of informed by ancient Sparta and even the, the just city and Plato's Republic. They do have passions. They just don't have the kind of obviously human passions. Um, and the the really crazy part about this is that Gulliver sort of instantly loads the Yahoos and he falls kind of head over heels for the the symbol of rationality and natural perfection offered by the Winhams. So he's convinced that he's kind of become enlightened now. And He's now free from all the kind of the malevolence and corruption of European society, of English society. And so he kind of becomes an acolyte or devotee or with, with the kind of the fervor of uh, a new convert. Um, so there's a degree of kind of, you know, fun apostasy here. But it's also Swift making fun of the idea that, you know, Puritan conversion is a model that anyone should see as admirable. There's also a degree to that with which he treats science as like, you know, you convince people of the majesty of science and then they become kind of um, yeah. engorged upon it. He it, There's a lot of stuff that I mean, we could talk about if we wanted to about what he thinks are the similarities between Protestantism, like dissenting Protestantism and scientism, but we don't need to go into that. <laughs> but basically, again, the point is, from my perspective at least, that this is not a place for humans. And Gulliver is treated as a bizarre kind of like non-entity. They can't understand, the Winhams can't understand how to classify him because they have a very Manichaean worldview where the Yahoos are singularly brute, uh, bestial and brutish and they don't, they don't have reason. Gulliver doesn't seem to have reason, but he has enough reason to be able to learn their language and have shame for his Yahooishness things like this so they can't understand like this is a yahoo with reason but it's not the good it's not the complete package of reasons so we're not sure what to do with them little so bit they, planet of the apes there maybe definitely <laughs> definitely and and very much like planet of the apes they essentially decide 
well, we're not sure if we need to eliminate the yahoos, but we definitely have to eliminate them if this guy with his kind of access to at least the kind of cunning and canny problem-solving aspects of reason could activate their malevolence and mischief in a more realized way. It's like at he's the uppity. moment... Sorry? <laughs> to use, he's uppity, to use a loaded term. Yeah, well, it's like at the moment the yahoos are depraved and disgusting and brutish, but they can't do anything about it. Right? They have they have a degree of social structure, but it's basically like they have a kind of a leader who just dominates some of the others and then he picks favorites based on how well they sniff his ass, if you can, <laughs> you can imagine that. Um, but with Gulliver there, now they're the winning from the winning perspective, they're lucky that he doesn't identify with them, but what if he did and decided to become their Charlton Heston to say, like, yeah, we're not gonna we can't have this. Yeah, he's gonna pull a twisted sister and say we're not gonna take it anymore. So essentially, he said, like, you have to be, they tell him, like, we're going to deport you. So he has a he has a kind of a sponsor or a master within the society who likes him. And so he facilitates an escape for him. And one of the things that's really grotesque is that now Gulliver so identifies with the uh, Winhams rather than Yahoo's that he makes himself a, a raft and a sail out of Yahoo hide. Oh, that's so a little bit of like talk about colonialism. That's a little bit of uh, what do they call it uh, when you self-identify with the with the oppressor? You know. Yeah. Um, I for, I for, what's the phrase? Ingrained or 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 self? Anyway, you know, you know, you know. There's a phrase for it. Yeah. The the post-colonial thinker Albert Memmi calls it uh, colonial mimicry, but. Uh, or, or culture cringe it's sometimes called yeah it's a process of dehumanization right so he's now, yeah. he's now segregated himself from his kind of fellow being and uh you speak of colonialism there's a there's a very famous um kind of two paragraphs very close to the end where he sort of says he gulliver absolutely tears to shreds the imperial project as just rapacious and morally bankrupt uh and it's, and it's kind of vexing to try and understand where exactly that fits into the rest of it, because there is there's a, a decent amount of, you know, English culture is good. But look at look at look at how we've allowed it to get bad rather than English culture is inherently bad. And it's spreading around the world, isn't it? Sort of well, negative I mean, for the as, world. As, as late as 1798, you have different kinds of people in Ireland rising up together against what they all perceived as the, the sort of political crimes of London ruling Ireland and that included you know people from Swift's uh, political uh, social class and, and and Catholic people as well who all all together felt that they're you know they were being treated badly by London which you know is it's a little bit like what you're saying about how he he didn't identify with Ireland but he still felt well I'm here now this, this is my church and we are being mistreated by a colonial power I think I think the best thing you could say for Swift in that regard is that the kind of the writings that he made in that mold uh, created the groundwork for that shared consciousness of what it meant to be Irish for later generations. So like, you know, without Swift giving voice to and imagining a coherent Irish community in the 17, let's say, 30s and 40s, uh, 30s, 1730s, you wouldn't have Wolftone able to imagine as inclusive and whites like broad-based an Ir- a conception of Irishness as he does later on. And of in course, century. you know, fr- from that point on, we have a grand tradition of, you know, Protestant Irish people who <clears throat> took up this mantle and, and did great work for, for independence and, and coming from, you know, more than one background and more than one sort of cultural place. So Ye- Yeats gave, an, si- gave an amazing speech in the um, Senate in the early days of Irish independence, basically saying as much and decrying the fact that Ireland was turning into a... Wolf tone, you know? Yeah, turning into a a nationalist-only, sort of Catholic, Celtic-only... Yeah, and like, because Yeats was a nationalist, but he just, his his conception of Irish nationalism was... um, Oh, Yeats. Yeats was off the charts mystical, and I I want to do an episode on him, but... But but, but Yeats was very ecumenically minded, right? Yes. In a way that basically by the time again he was speaking in the senate in the early days of irish independence like we were already crystallizing into a, i mean borderline theocratic hyper catholic re- yes. regime you know um, anyway listen we um okay so what happens just for time reasons so how, how does it wind up with the with the yahoos so the very last line is he escapes and he makes it home 
but he's totally interiorized his kind of connection to the Winhams, and now he spends most of his days in the stable with the horses, uh, trot, trot, trotting about, and he can barely stomach the smell of his wife and kids. And he's, he's, he, he thinks that everything and everyone he sees are just like completely disgusting. And he's lamenting the fact that his society is beyond redemption and that even if the Winhams came here to try to offer a, a noble example for humans to follow, to what he's now calling European yahoos. They'll... I'm sure a few expats who have come back uh, have gone through periods like that. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, you know, the, there's the, um, the allegory of the cave in Plato and the philosopher escapes the cave, sees the sun, comes back and has to try and convince uh convince his the 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 prisoners down there of of the you know the 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 truth of the sun or whatever in this case what gulliver learns is he does is all wrong he doesn't see the sun and he <laughs> he goes back back down to the cave and he's insane so it it's <laughs> it's a it's a very very in, you know it's a crazy book and like i said i think it's really important to remember that the version that the kiddies get is is it's it's heavily redacted let's put it that way Okay, my, my, my last question to wrap up. What, is, what, what do monsters mean to Swift and to people of this time? What, what does the idea of monstrosity represent? Because I like monsters and we talk about them on the show. So for him, he's thinking a lot about human nature and the, the beastliness and the brutishness inherent to human nature. <clears throat> and he's wondering if the monster is an outlier or whether or not it's the inner truth, the darker truth. And he's wondering, can people be made monstrous? And so do we need to be saved from our own nature or do we need to be saved from the corrupting social circumstances that turn us into monsters? And he's kind of playing with the conventions of emergent science to say that the exceptions are more valuable than the rule as you know, guides to the increase of knowledge. So. Francis Bacon said something to the effect of, you know, God tells us more through the outliers than he does through the through the norm. So that's why, you know, the scientific mission of data collection around the world, right, which is kind of what Gulliver is doing, has to feature monstrosities. Like you should be looking for monstrosities over anything else. And Swift <laughs> is kind of saying, if you want, if you want a monster, look in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is a, a nice, neat soundbite to wrap things up. Donald, thank you very much once again. You're very welcome. Last time we talked about Joe Rogan. Before that, we talked about Hulk Hogan and, and Jonathan Swift now. So who knows what's next? Thank you so much. Well, I have, I have to think very hard and debate whether I know more about <laughs> Swift, Hogan or Kiss. <laughs> one of those things is not like the others. <laughs> all right thank you all right all the best thanks for listening folks hopefully you enjoyed that one as always if you want to get in touch with us just a quick reminder on twitter we are at strange ireland on instagram we are white atlantic weird podcast so we have lots more great episodes coming up before halloween so until then as always stay safe and thanks for listening we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this Unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.